Hi, welcome to the Wellness Doctors Podcast with Dr. Lorena and Dr. Vanessa. We are both medical doctors who talk about how to optimize health and well-being so that you can be empowered to make better healthy choices, enrich the lives of people around you and join us in the evolution of healthcare. Hello. Hey. Sunday night. I know. <laughs> it has been a long week, actually. Yeah. What's been going on? So I'm currently in the process of relocating my practice. And mm-hmm. so relocating into another practice. And then I have to integrate the staff and the computer system and also the actual workflow um, to, you know, a different practice. So there's a lot of um, back and forth and a lot of different meetings to try and integrate that process. Must be a massive job to do all that. <laughs> yeah, so I have a total of uh, nine people in my own practice. So I'm trying to integrate that into another group of around 30 people. <laughs> so it's always challenging, but um, it is all good. Um, so I'm looking forward to when that all gets completed. Yeah, sometimes change is good. It helps yeah. us um, kind of recalibrate mm. and focus on what's important and what's just faff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and unnecessary bits that we've accumulated over time but haven't figured out how to get rid of it. Or yeah, you know, just, it's good to have a cleansing process. Yeah, it's good to consolidate and get rid of things that I've been meaning to do for a long time. Yeah, yeah. like spring cleaning. Yeah, it is. So in many ways, good clear out the clutter. <laughs> yeah. And I guess mentally we should do that too. True. Yes. And actually, it does actually affect me mentally as well. Because yeah. um, once you've got a tidy, clearer space, it also makes your mind feel more clear. Um yeah, so it's good. And what about yourself? Yeah, it's been okay. I think uh, I've been sort of doing more training. So normally I go do something every day, but I'll take a break whenever I feel like it. But I'm doing more specific training because I've got a ski workshop coming up and I'm really excited to do it because mm-hmm. I feel my skiing has plateaued. And mm-hmm. I'm not happy with my skiing style. So I decided mm-hmm. to upgrade myself by doing a ski course, which is five days. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty long days. And as you know, my activated type doesn't like cold, windy places. So I'm <laughs> going to have to you know, load up on antioxidants and battle the oxidative stress. Um, but- and also the um, protection of your joints and your ligaments too. Yeah, so I'm getting a lot of cracking on my backs and, you know, I'm trying to sleep more to recover from the the back-to-back training, but focusing Mm -hmm. more on aerobic and um, flexibility and core strength. Mm -hmm. And today I did a 5K swim. Um, So, yeah, just really focusing more on your endurance and your aerobic. Yeah, endurance, aerobic, and also you need a lot of, like, sprint power. Yeah you know, just to punch through things at certain times. So it's it's kind of like a good all-rounded bit sport. of a mix. Yeah. yeah. So I think the training's been really good. It just takes a lot out of my recovery. 
<laughs> so yeah. I'm having to sleep nine hours, ten hours just to get over it. And that's something which a lot of people forget because um, most people focus on the actual doing and the training aspect, but often the recovery is just as important, if not more so, than the actual training itself. Speaking of which, you've tried something new. I have. So um, like yourself, I have been doing a little bit more. um, I have changed my training a little bit to do something called giant sets. Um, So incorporating giant sets is a type of very, uh, it's a little bit more of an advanced type of training where you're you're doing sets of exercises um, that include more than four different kinds of exercise so the the in the circuit without any break in between so what I've been doing uh, recently would be things like doing a set of squats and then going into barbell rows so and then going into um, reverse hyperextensions which is a glute workout going into lat pull downs then going into um, lunges with dumbbells into ring rows and then into a power push so it basically a set of seven exercises without any break so what i would do then is to go from a lower rep so between six to eight reps into 15 reps into 17 reps and then into 20 reps so i would do four sets at the same weight uh in decreasing weights in decreasing weights okay. yeah so you start off heavy and then as you go up in terms of repetitions you reduce the weight so it's a bit of a intense workout where you're really trying to shock the muscles into increasing in strength and density um, and basically boosting strength um, and endurance at the same time. Yeah. So, so part of that, actually, having, having done that, um, really well, requires a lot of rest and recovery. So I have felt definitely the next day that I'm much more tired. Uh, my muscles are more achy and um, everything's a little bit tighter. So um, that's just something that's just really a part of the training. And what I will do the next couple of days is to do more cardio work, trying to get the blood flowing just to release those lactic acids and reduce that tightness. But this week, something new arrived in my clinic. Yay! So <laughs> I, 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 had a, I had something new and shiny to try out and actually... It's um, something which has been around the anti-aging arena for quite some time. It's a molecule called NAD. NAD. Yes. <laughs> so the elixir of longevity. Yes. And <laughs> never aging like Peter Pan, as people yeah. like to think. <laughs> yeah. So it's been touted as prolonging lifespan, improving health span. Um, interestingly enough, it's also been used intravenously uh, for alcohol addiction and withdrawal. Yeah. So that's really where the human studies have come from. And a lot of supplement stores or health food stores are selling capsules of it yeah. or precursors of NAD as a capsule. So you can take it orally. And the one that I actually um, have received is a, a patch of NAD so it actually comes and and the patch is actually quite interesting because it uses a really old technology called iontophoresis yeah so iontophoresis is actually an electrical current system that helps to deliver 
drugs topically. So a lot of physical therapists will know about this because often they will use um, for, for things like frozen shoulders or muscle pain, they would actually use this particular kind of device. To... And also cosmetic stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So a, yeah. I, yeah, I use it in my in my practice for skin. So to infuse nutrients like vitamin C and amino acids into the skin. So you can actually now buy a patch that is battery powered and has this iontophoresis um, device in the patch. And then you actually put the NAD solution into the patch. And what it will do is the iontophoresis device will change the permeability of your cells so that the nutrient penetrates into the skin and gets into the bloodstream. Do you have to carry the power pack with you? Actually, it, it's stuck onto your body. So the patch is probably about the size of my foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so the surface area is the size of my foot. And the actual NAD patch is probably a size of a, um, I would say, a $5 coin. Oh, okay. Maybe a little bit bigger, $5 Hong Kong coin, maybe a bit bigger. And then the battery is probably no more than like a watch battery. So okay. it's also, pretty light and compact. Yeah, it's pretty light and compact. And you're not rigged up like a robot. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So you can move and you can walk around. And I was wearing this, and, and so I was wearing this patch just around at home. And um, it, you have to wear it for four hours because that's how long it takes to deliver the 400 milligrams of NAD. And so once you've done that, you just rip the patch off and then you throw it out. So it's a single use. Um, and so each patch actually comes with its own battery and um, uh, its own solution of NAD. So I didn't really feel anything, usually maybe because I actually put the patch on my thigh. Um, but sometimes you, if you've got like big arms, you can put it on your arm or you can put it on your abdomen or your back. And usually in some areas that are a bit more sensitive, you might feel a little bit of a tingling. Yeah, yeah kind of like a little electric shock. But it's not, it's kind of like a bit of itchiness, but it's not too unbearable. So um, I think if you actually put it on your leg, it's, it's definitely much more comfortable because I had one of my staff try it and she put it on her forearm. Um, and she said that it was really quite obvious that there was tingling and itching. So... Mm. Depending Do you know on... what form of um, NAD it is? Is it NR or NNN? Actually, it says NAD plus. So okay. I believe it's the actual non-sterile form of the IV version that they use. Right. Interesting. And yeah, so it's a really interesting way because the IV version um, tends to give a lot of side effects. So a lot of really heavy palpitations and heaviness and gut pain and it often takes up to three hours to do the infusion so not a lot of people are going to tolerate it just for the benefit of anti-aging because um you know that's most people are well and healthy and they're not really symptomatic as opposed to someone who's an alcoholic and they might get really awful withdrawal symptoms as you know so they might actually tolerate the iv better and so that's why I was looking at different alternative ways of delivering this. Yeah. And so I wore the patch on um, Saturday night and um, I had two days of doing uh, more aerobic kind of training. So the kind of training I usually do is I, I go to the gym and I 
join a group fitness class and it's like a kickboxing group fitness class. So you're kind of just moving your body and your arms and legs around. And I often find that at the end of the week when I'm doing this type of training, my muscles are fatigued. I'm a little bit more achy. I'm a bit more tired. But today in the afternoon after the NAD patch, I actually noticed I was sweating a lot but I didn't actually feel that physically I was as exhausted. Mm. So, (laughs) and this is something that I do all the time. So it's not new. I haven't changed my fitness routine or I haven't done anything new. Um, So I felt that it really did make a difference to my endurance and my recovery. Yeah. I mean, the whole NED thing, I've tried to understand it and I have to admit it just escapes me, but (laughs) Um, I was listening to a podcast and I think most like some of the NAD that you make in your body actually has a feedback mechanism. So mm. at some point it will stop your body's level from increasing. Mm, yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's actually that, um, how should I say, it? if it's significant enough that it raises mm-hmm. your blood level and whether that has any impact on your physiology for example Mm. and the second thing is you need the NAD but you also need um, like sutured activators so you would consider taking resveratrol with it for example just to get more benefit from the Mm. longevity point of view right there's so many things that you know we don't have answers to or it's just mouse studies (laughs) yes exactly yeah a lot of things are animal studies yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of controversy about this because yeah. we know also that when you have tumors and cancers, the NAD levels drop and that's really part of the body's way of trying to minimize the damage. So if you're trying to increase it, is that going to theoretically potentially cause tumor growth? So that's really kind of that unknown right now. So there's, there's actually no really long-term studies. And we also don't know whether the NAD does actually increase energy production. So there's a lot of unknowns. And that's the reason why I think um, this is a space that we need to keep watching. And a lot of research is being done. So hopefully we'll get a few more different kinds of answers as to what works. But, you know, in the meantime, it's, it's a really fancy kind of... <laughs> Yeah, I think in the meantime, for most people, just go back to basics, right? Yeah. Just eat well, exercise, manage your stress, sleep, yeah. and just be a happy person. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the things when we talked about, the sirtuins, which is sort of, you know, touted as the, the, the molecule that regulates cell development. I mean, green tea and turmeric, you know, for example, these are these are that these are sirtuins that are in foods and spices, um, or even doing hot therapy like a sauna or cold therapy induces heat shock proteins, yeah. and that turns on your longevity genes as well. So there are a lot of ways of doing it, yeah, without going into super fancy things. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, but, you because know. we are doctors and we have access to these things, we like trying them out. So. <laughs> yeah, now I was also curious. I mean, obviously. If you're a beginner in exercise, do not go to giant sets. <laughs> yes. Correct. If you just start swimming in the pool, don't do 5K in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got to, yeah. So you really have to watch out for that. Yeah. But speaking of like wellness and trying to optimize, I think today's topic might be quite interesting because we always 
you know, think about going to the doctors and most people get their blood test done. Maybe it's a company health checkup, which they mm-hmm. do annually, or the doctors just run a bunch of tests. Yeah. But then they don't really get explained like what each number means. And they just either told, yeah, you're fine. Or yeah, it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. oh, this number's really bad, but, you know, we, we'll give you a medication. And it, there doesn't seem to be any kind of doctor to patient translation of how these numbers should work yeah. and what they actually mean in terms of wellness, not just sickness. So yeah. today we're going to talk about blood markers and how to look at them from an optimal or functional perspective. Yeah, because I used to actually work for a company um, that just did annual health checks for their employees. So I probably would have gone through like thousands of you know these health checkups. So all these people come in, they have no diseases or conditions or they have no symptoms and so we just take their blood and then we you know I'd have to then interpret the blood and then write the report and then explain it so after thousands and thousands of these it made me start to wonder why am I doing them yeah because I actually never really picked up anything um, really ridiculously abnormal so then the kind of question I had was so what's the point of doing this and it wasn't really until you know, really recently that we started or the World Health Organization started to talk about health. And tr- and, and now in this space, we're trying to define what is health, because we know that health is not just merely the absence of disease. Um, it's actually something which requires a level of functional or metabolic efficiency so that as human beings, we can have really efficient ways of using our mind, our body, and even our spirit. So, this is really a, a developing area. And so when I actually came across the uh, looking and interpreting blood markers in a, in a, in a functional perspective, it's, it's not just looking at the normal standard ranges. Because if you look at a blood test report, you've got these numbers. And there's a range of numbers between, say, for example, zero to five. And when, as doctors, we're taught that if, if everything falls within that range, that person is normal. Or even if it falls just slightly out of that range, we'll still not do anything about it. (laughs) Yeah. Most doctors would respond to extremely large deviations from those ranges. But if it's just like a one-off little bit here, a little bit there, um, most doctors don't actually do much about it because they don't know what to do about it. You know, Mm. how these ranges came about and if you look at different labs they have slightly different ranges so some of these ranges are because um, there is a a study or you know there's some general consensus of what Mm -hmm. these numbers should be but also the labs get people's blood tests and they kind of do a a normal distribution and then they just do a cutoff so they cut off the worst people at at this end uh, at the left hand side at the right hand side of the bell curve yeah, And so the, the test ranges may differ from one lab to another. And secondly, how they get those numbers are because sick people go to the labs and get tested. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you compare yourself with these numbers, you may just be comparing yourself with someone who's not that healthy. You may be comparing your blood test to an 80-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, and a, and a stroke. So when you still fall within that range, it's not optimal. You're, you're, you're not diseased but it doesn't tell you anything about your health status yeah so usually when they actually test these population 90 95 percent of that tested population is going to be normal 
And then you've got either end of the range where there's 2.5% of that population that's either really low or really high. And so that's what that bell curve means. And unfortunately, when we see a lot of these people, their lab test results are normal, but they have symptoms of fatigue, weight gain, despite diet and exercise, they may have insomnia, they may have digestive issues, food intolerances, and the results often come back as negative. So I see a lot of people who are very dejected because they feel that there's nothing wrong with them. It's all in their head. They are embarrassed to come in to, to see the doctor because they just told that, you know, there's nothing really wrong. But when I came across um, a couple of uh, health professionals in the US, and one of them is actually Dr. James Lavelle. He's actually a pharmacist and also a nutritionist. Um, and a naturopathic doctor, he actually talked about looking at optimal ranges. And so when I started going back into some of the normal blood tests that I was exposed to from my patients, and I started looking at the narrow ranges, I was able to piece together things like inflammation, um, issues like oxidative stress, gut dysbiosis, um, adrenal stress, and underfunctioning thyroids. And actually, there was, there was a treasure of information in those blood test results because now I was looking at it at a more optimal functional range and then looking at the patterns of the different markers in the blood test. So I was able to work out what could be the underlying dysfunction that's related, that's, that's related to this person's history and their symptoms. And it's really interesting once you start looking at these numbers from a different lens, you almost feel like a detective. You're thinking, well, what could be going on here? And it's actually very interesting to, mm. to see how, you know, suddenly these numbers start to mean something, even to a doctor, as opposed to, oh, there's a, there's a red asterisk here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's all you're taught to do, or here's an H, here's an L. Um, yeah. Now things actually start to make sense and also become more clinically relevant when you're trying to help that person. You're not just treating the numbers. Yeah. So let's talk about inflammation. What markers do you normally look out for in inflammation? So when I, when I talk about inflammation, and I think to sort of help define what inflammation is, like often we think of inflammation as, you know, presenting with pain, presenting with swelling, redness, all those things. But actually, when we talk about systemic inflammation, that's inflammation that we're not feeling physically, but there are blood markers that actually um, in the blood tests can show inflammation. So one of these markers is something called high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And this is really important because even in conventional medicine, doctors will look at this C-reactive protein or HSCRP, and they will if they see really, really, really high level, then there's a high risk of having heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, autoimmune problems, for example. Now, when we actually look at optimal levels, however, the range is actually much narrower. So for example, in a lab test, you may see a range between zero to 2.9 as being normal. But when we're looking at optimal numbers, we want that level to be less than one. So if somebody comes in and they have some symptoms and we're correlating those symptoms with that marker, then 
I'm not just looking for an abnormal number. I'm actually looking to see, does this person have an optimal HSCRP level? So that's one particular marker that I would look for. The other one is something called homocysteine. So homocysteine uh, is actually a metabolite of an amino acid um, pathway. And again, this one is also associated with chronic illness like heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, um, diabetes. So I would look at the HSCRP, the homocysteine, and again, I would be looking at optimal ranges. So I would look at each number individually, and then I will actually look at the group of markers for inflammation. So in the lab test, generally they say, oh, your homocysteine is normal if it's between, I think, 3 to 14 or 5 to 14. But actually, for me as a psychiatrist, I'm really interested in looking at homocysteine because it's also a broad function of methylation. And methylation is very important for your creatine, your choline, but also your neurotransmitters Mm -hmm. and liver detox and joints and and so on. So actually for me, an optimal number should be around five to seven or at least up to nine, but not a double digit. Yeah. So most people I see, they may be in the teens or in the 20s, but I've seen mm-hmm. 60-something, and I've heard of people seeing hundreds. Mm. So what it means is that there's something stuck downstream from the homocysteine, so it can't be recycled. Yeah. And why that stuck could be many reasons. It could be a folate deficiency, a B12 deficiency, a zinc or magnesium issue, mm-hmm. or you're lacking certain types of nutrients like choline, or you have a lot of you know, toxicity or inflammation that's blocking certain genes and enzymes that are Mm -hmm. helping with this process. But regardless, a high number would suggest that something's blocked and that would contribute to all these diseases you're saying. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've also seen really no numbers like two or three. And I think for those people, it may be because they don't have enough substrate to make the homocysteine. And the substrate comes from the thionine, which is mostly... Uh, it's amino acid. You can get it from both plant and and, and animals. But if you don't have enough yeah. homos, um, methionine as an amino acid, you don't get enough building blocks. And you can't make methionine in the body. It's one of those that you have to get from your food. Mm-hmm. So an extremely low number or high number could correlate with some of these symptoms. Yeah. And actually, we'll talk about the homocysteine again later because another mechanism... Um, that occurs in the body uh, also causes a low level of homocysteine. And that's also associated with a low level of antioxidants. Yeah. So we can go back to the, the homocysteine yeah. <laughs> when we talk about antioxidants. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, But what are the markers of inflammation? Let's just finish off this one. Yeah. So the other two that I often look at is ferritin. And ferritin is an interesting one because ferritin X is actually traditionally... Uh, a, a, a result or a molecule that it indicates a storage form of iron. So it's actually made by the liver. And a low ferritin usually indicates uh, low iron levels. But a high ferritin actually can indicate that there's inflammation in the body. Because interestingly enough, ferritin is actually a molecule that is anti-inflammatory. So apart from some genetic diseases, I mean, there's obviously not just inflammation, but there are also some people with a genetic disease where they 
tend to store more iron. And if they don't have that genetic disease, but they have high levels of ferritin, then that, that's what I would be thinking of is, is, does this person have some type of inflammatory process that's going on in their body? And so I think for ferritin, when I look at numbers, it may differ slightly for a man versus a menstruating female. Yeah. Because if someone does have a, a quite a heavy bleed on a monthly basis, you might deplete a little bit of ferritin. Mm -hmm. So I, I would look at, you know, between 30 or 50 as a lower cutoff and then between 150 to 200, depending on the male and the female. Yeah. And I've seen when people are inflamed, they generally could get up to the hundreds. So yeah. like five, six, seven hundreds. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about this genetic disease which is basically your body cannot regulate your iron and just keeps absorbing more and more yeah. it could get into thousands yeah and the problem with iron is it's the same iron that you would see on a nail right so iron can rust when it's exposed to oxygen and it's the same iron in our body so when your body starts to rust it creates a lot of oxidative stress Mm -hmm. And it also means you age faster because you're essentially rusting from the inside. So that's why excessively high amounts of iron floating around isn't great because it causes damage to all the other proteins in your body as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's also so instead of just looking for ferritin as a marker for iron deficiency or anemia or the genetic disorder, um, it's also a correlate marker for inflammation yeah and the final one i sometimes look at uh was also something called fibrinogen so fibrinogen is actually a marker for clotting um and the stickiness of your blood so if those levels are high we also know that there is a high chance of having things like heart disease and arterial disease clots increases your risk of stroke so these high levels can also be found in other types of inflammatory disorders like rheumatoid arthritis or kidney disease. So if I see a pattern of these different levels being slightly on the higher end, then I would be looking to see what is causing inflammation in this particular person. Which segues nicely into the most common cause of inflammation in the body, which is your gut. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that you could sort of detect some sort of gut dysbiosis in the blood. Mm -hmm. so what markers are you looking for there? Right. So, um, so because with gut dysbiosis, there's actually no real acute infection. So it's not like you get a viral illness or you've got food poisoning. It's more like a overgrowth or imbalance of gut flora. So what can happen is that when we eat certain proteins in our uh, from food there is a group of dysbiotic gut flora that produces amino acids. So these are what we call putrefactive gut flora, and they break down the proteins and it makes ammonia. So the ammonia is then transported into the liver and the liver actually converts it into something called urea. So urea is often used as a, or what we call blood urea nitrogen, is often used as a marker for kidney function. So if we actually see a level of this blood urea nitrogen, what we call BUN or short term for BUN, if I see this marker as going up and or trending high, then 
that is an indirect indication to me to look a little bit deeper into the gut to see if there's actually um, some kind of gut dysbiosis. And I guess, like you said, it is a marker for kidney function. So most doctors would look at it in the sense, in the context of the kidney problem. So if you do see your bun or urea trending slightly high, it doesn't mean you definitely have gut dysbiosis. It could mean, you know, something to do with your dehydration status. It could be a kidney problem. It could be that you've had a very uh, animal meat heavy yes. diet as well. Yeah. So don't freak out if your numbers are <laughs> a little bit off because these numbers vary on a day-to-day basis based on you know what meal you've had, what exercise mm-hmm. you've done, how much sleep you've had, uh, are you hydrated? Yeah. So it's best to uh, interpret these numbers in the context of what you were doing and in the yeah. overall sense of like you, you are human you're not just a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper yeah and that's really important that's why when we look at these functional markers we're also looking at the history of the of the patient because we want to know what symptoms they have what have they done how's their exercise did they exercise really heavily the day before did they eat a really high protein meals. So all these things actually do come into factor. And so we're not just relying on one particular marker for one thing, because we know that the body is interconnected. So we're actually looking for different patterns. And so the other pattern that I often look at is the actual globulin uh, levels, because we know that probably about 70 of our immune system is located in the gut. And globulin levels are proteins in the blood that are responsible for making antibodies. So antibodies are very specific parts of our immune system that are involved in attacking um, viruses and bacteria and infections. So if I actually see that someone has a lower level of these globulins, it indicates to me that their immune system has been under stress for a long period of time. So it could indicate that there is some type of chronic gastritis that is happening in their gut. So if I see these pattern of markers, a high BUN, a low globulin, um, and I know that generally their immune system, and, and I know generally that they don't have a serious, severe immune system dysfunction, then I would be suspecting that perhaps there is some type of dysbiosis in their gut. Another couple of markers I like to look at is the uh, under the white cell function, uh, white cell count, there is one specific type of white cell called eosinophil. Mm-hmm. And eosinophils generally are high if there's a parasite or if you have a lot of allergies. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if the patient doesn't have a lot of allergies that you, from the history that you know of, but has a high eosinophil, then it starts you thinking down the path of, well, is there a, a gut parasite here that's mm-hmm. causing problems? And another one you taught me before is called the MEB. Mm-hmm. And I think this is probably more anecdotal, like a, a yeah. kind of clinical pearl, because it's, it's hard to find them in it's hard to find. textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> but the MEB is essentially the summation of the monocyte, eosinophil, and basophil numbers. And you find this under your complete blood count section. There's usually the neutrophils, lymphocytes, and then your MEBs. Mm-hmm. And so if you add up the numbers of the MEB and it's, higher than eight or ten mm-hmm. then you start thinking well is there some sort of gut thing going on because monocytes as well as you know basophils mm-hmm. they tend to respond to certain types of 
um, gut dysbiosis. Yeah. So when you put all these numbers together and they all seem to indicate a certain thing, then you think, well, that's kind of come up a priority scale now. Yeah. It's not allergies or it's not dehydration. It's probably yeah. likely a, a gut dysbiosis and you can look further into it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the oxidative stress because you mentioned earlier we could mm-hmm. um, go back to the homocysteine so right. what is the connection there so oxidative stress i mean we we all make energy so oxidative stress is or, or oxidation is part of the normal process of our body making energy now the issue is not the oxidation but the inability to neutralize it with antioxidants so if there's excessive oxidative stress there's often a lot more damage to the cells of our body um, it causes damage to our mitochondria, which then accelerates the process of aging and causes symptoms like fatigue and chronic illness. So apart from homocysteine, the other markers that I would look at is uric acid because um, uric acid, again, is a, um, con- uh, a a lab test that we often do as conventional doctors to look for gout. So gout is a, an inflammatory joint condition. And high levels of uric acid can precipitate gout. It can also indicate that that person has eaten a meal that's very, very high in purines or proteins. And it can also indicate that the kidneys are not excreting it because majority of uric acid is excreted by the kidneys. So indirectly, it reflects that. Um, The other thing is that there could be excessive tissue breakdown. So a lot of our tissues are made up of different types of proteins attached to different molecules. So if we're not eating a high protein diet, then the, the other way that we get rid of lots of protein is actually from our own body. So if we're actually getting high levels of uric acid, that can indicate that there is some breakdown and damage. And often that is because the, the cells in our bodies are, are damaged. So when I see high levels of uric acid, that doesn't, it, it, there's not as high as say someone who has gout, I will still see that. And I will still know that there's actually some predisposition potentially to it. Speaking of gout, I heard something interesting because as a medical student, you get taught a list of foods that you should tell your patients to not eat that would precipitate gout. Yeah. And the one that commonly comes up is beer. And the other one is seafood. But yeah. I never figured out why beer was an issue until someone explained it to me on a podcast that actually purines are very rich in DNA. So the DNA yes. material is essentially made of building blocks of purine. Mm-hmm. So beer has a lot of yeast and yeast has its own DNA. But because they're so tiny, you don't really see the yeast kind of in the beer, but it's there. Everybody knows that beer is made of yeast. So the amount of DNA collectively in the yeast has so much purine that it precipitates the gout. I never knew that. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't explain the rest of the food, like (laughs) or, you know, soy tofu and bok choy, I think, something like that. Yeah. The beer thing is a bit of a trivia there. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it also uh, helped me remember that, you know, purines do make up the bulk of our DNA. 
It does, exactly. So if you're getting a lot of DNA damage well, so as a result of oxidative yeah. stress. That's yeah. why the big meat diet would also precipitate gout because meat obviously has a lot of muscles and that's you know a lot of DNA. <laughs> yeah. And I do see some people who actually don't eat a lot of meat, but they do have trending high levels of uric acid. So that's also another um, – and, and uric acid itself is, is actually an antioxidant on its own. So having high levels could be indicating that your body is trying to fight the oxidative stress by trying to balance its antioxidant um, capacity. I think that's a really good point because when we see these numbers, it's not that the body is giving up on us. It's actually the body trying to compensate and help us survive. It's just that we don't pay attention to it and we keep pushing it. And at some point, something breaks the camel's back. Yeah. So being able to look at these numbers and pick things up earlier means that you're more aware of how to help your body cope and combat these problems. Yeah. So another marker for oxidative stress is um, gamma GT. Yeah. Um, so or what we call GGT. So in psychiatry, we see a lot of people with you know alcohol problems, mm-hmm. and that's the number you always look for to see how bad is the drinking because it generally correlates with how much um, drinking is causing the GGT to go up. And again, in medical school, nobody explained to me why it goes up. But actually, GGT is involved in making your body's major antioxidant called glutathione. Mm. So if you drink a lot of alcohol, you're stressing out the liver and you're forcing the body to make a lot of antioxidant, which is the glutathione, your gamma GT goes up in response to having to deal with all this um, oxidative stress. And gamma GT responds very quickly. So if you see someone come off their alcohol, Within a couple of weeks, it would go down dramatically. But it's also very indicative of not just alcohol, but any kind of oxidative stress in the body. So if you had a, a massive accident or a huge infection, these numbers would go up. And so which brings us back to what we talked about before with homocysteine, because if you actually have oxidative oh, yeah. stress, you have low <laughs> levels of homocysteine. <laughs> And um, in order to make glutathione, you need to have adequate amounts of homocysteine. So basically, if you see a pattern of high GGT with a low homocysteine, then you would be thinking that glutathione is one of the antioxidants that's, that's being depleted or it's not being made enough because of oxidative stress. So visually, if you imagine homocysteine in the circle at the top, but it's getting sucked down to make glutathione, then your homocysteine number would be low because you're kind of it's kind of leaking out from the, the bottom mm-hmm. of the boat. Whilst at the same time your GGT would be high because that's the enzyme that's required to generate the glutathione. Yep. So they, they, there's an interesting pattern there. Yeah. And um, the other one that I really like, which is um, a cheap way of working out whether or not you've got enough vitamin C in your body is looking at your albumin. So mm. albumin is another protein in the blood and it's often responsible for carrying hormones around your body. So if you see a low level of albumin and um, you see a low level that that can in- actually indicate that your vitamin C levels are low. So you can put that together with a low iron level 
And the reason is because you also need to have sufficient vitamin C to absorb iron. So sometimes you'll see a really strange pattern in blood tests where I don't know you've come across this, but I have women who have low levels of iron, but their ferritins are really high. Yes. So it makes sense because vitamin C is a really potent antioxidant. It's also a really good anti-inflammatory. And so if I actually see this pattern, then I'm thinking, well, this person actually might be needing more vitamin C because they might be under stress or they might be exposed to toxins. Um, so this is a really nice little pattern that I sometimes go to, to see whether or not I need to sort of give them a vitamin C flush or give them a bit of a boost. Could you explain again why albumin is related to vitamin C? What's the correlation there? Just because if I can't understand it, I don't think my listeners could understand it. (laughs) Oh, okay. So... Sometimes what can happen is that um, when you actually see a combination of not just the albumin, um, because it's not just the albumin that's actually low, but you'll actually also see the other markers of iron being low. So it'll be hemoglobin, it will be the, the, the size of the red blood cells, all yeah. of these things will actually also be low. So everything looks like an iron deficiency problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But your ferritin is high, which doesn't make sense because if you're iron deficient, you should be draining out your ferritin. Yes. Yeah. And your iron levels are actually low, whereas like your ferritin levels are high, which actually doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And how does the vitamin C come into that? I'll have to actually go back to explain that one for you because I think it's an association. I don't think we actually know exactly right. what the reason is. Okay, so there's no simplistic, mechanistic way of doing it. No, it it just seems to be Um, the pattern that's seen. Yeah. Yeah, well, something for for me to look into then. There might be in some study somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. So another thing that I've had difficulty understanding in the past was the acid base or the anion gap. So the reason why this is important and, and people are very popular in talking about it is because there's a, pop, um, there's a popular alkaline diet and people think that alkaline is good for you so you should eat alkaline food. But then paradoxically, when you eat things like citrus fruit, it also improves your alkaline alkalinity mm-hmm. in the body. So it, it sounds weird that you, know, you would eat something acidic that would help you with improving your alkalinity. So yes. I'll let you explain that one too. <laughs> <laughs> so... So basically, when we talk about um, acid alkaline, um, we're in in conventional medicine, we're we're often referring to pretty serious conditions in the emergency room where the pH of your blood is out of balance. Um, Now, we're not really talking about that here, because what we are talking about more so is the actual functional um, imbalances and dysfunctions that occur as a result of these charges on these molecules that are in our body so things like um, or or uh, salts like sodium potassium and chloride they specifically have a charge in our body so they we call the positive charges like a magnet so we call the positive ones cations and these are actually made up of minerals that are that that sodium and potassium so these are positive. So I always look for the O, which means positive. So there's O in sodium, O in potassium. 
And these have to be balanced um, or they're in a relationship with negative charges called anions. So these anions are your chlorides and your carbon dioxide. So basically your kidneys, your lungs, uh, they're actually involved in regulating these cations and anions. So there's something called the anion gap, which calculates the relationship between these cations and anions. And so if you add all the cations together, which is the sodium and potassium, and they add all the plus numbers. Yeah, you add the plus numbers. And, and then you, you add, add the minus numbers. Minus numbers, yeah. yeah. And then you come with, out with an anion gap number. So, so say you add up all the plus numbers and it was, you know, plus 185. And then the minus numbers was minus 200, something like that. So you have a gap of 15. Yeah. And what does this gap mean? So if you have a high anion gap, it means that you're metabolically acidotic. So you're... that's just something you have to remember. <laughs> yeah, that's just something you have to remember. So, so basically these, these gaps or this high gap is made up of extracellular um, anions. And these extracellular anions include things like lactic acid, for example, or ketones and other molecules like phosphates and sulfates Phosphate, that have yeah. different functions in the body. So we just have to know that a high gap means that there is a high metabolic acidosis. And so this is important because our cells actually function under very tightly regulated levels of pH. And if there is a very high level of pH, then the enzymes that are important for making certain types of pathways in our body work, they actually don't work very effectively. So everything kind of gets slowed down. So things occur in much slower motion. So there's le less metabolic efficiency. There's less energy being made. Less um, detox. Less detox. And so we don't really want this kind of high anion gap um, occurring. So you want to create an environment where the cells are happy and the enzymes are able to do their job. Because enzymes are very fickle. They don't like to be too hot, too cold, too acidic, too <laughs> alkaline. <laughs> Yeah, they don't like to be poisoned with, you know, environmental toxins. So in order to keep that happy, we need to assist by creating an environment that is suitable. And one of the easiest ways you can do this is to improve your anion gap. So you want it to be more alkaline in the sense that mm -hmm. you're shifting it towards a pH that is more conducive for these enzymes to function properly. And when, in order to do that, because there's a gap, right? There's a deficiency of these um, anions that we talked about. You want to eat foods that are high in these anions. Yeah. And so these foods generally are your fruits and vegetables and all the healthy stuff that you're supposed to eat. Yeah, that's simple. So <laughs> it's that simple. If you don't understand any of that, just remember eating all your greens and your fruit yeah. will help you improve your anion gap, which means your acid-base balance is going to be better and you're going to be much better in terms of your overall metabolic health. hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't, you can repeat it, it. <laughs> or go back and listen to it again. <laughs> so that was a heavy weight one to get out of the way let's talk about more hormonal stuff so what sort of hormones can we test for in the blood 
So instead of, and this is a really hard one because we all talk about stress and one of the stress hormones is cortisol. So it's a hormone that's released by the adrenal glands and this pair of glands actually sits on top of our kidneys. So it's important and it's, it's very difficult to measure because it has a diurnal variation. So cortisol is high in the morning and then as the day goes, it slowly drops. So if you wanted to measure someone's cortisol, you'd have to sit them in a lab for the entire day. Then you'd have to prick them with a needle at least several times during that day. And the problem with that is that some people are really fearful of needles. So their cortisol levels can actually be really, really high when you do that. So it's very difficult to get an accurate reading. And um, there are obviously other options as well, but sometimes these tests can be fairly expensive to do. So one of the cheat ways of looking at adrenal function is to actually look at an indirect um, hormone that's also made by the adrenal glands called aldosterone. So aldosterone is a hormone that regulates the minerals in our body, particularly, again, we were talking about potassium and sodium. So if you have stress, you tend to also produce high levels of aldosterone. So when you have more aldosterone, it causes your kidneys to absorb potassium from the actual urine. So in exchange for potassium, sodium gets secreted. So what happens is that when you have acute stress, you can have a relatively high level of sodium in the blood and a lower level of potassium. So to make it sound more <laughs> clinically useful, imagine if you were really stressed out and some people start to get really puffy and they think it's because they're gaining weight. So they try and exercise more and limit their diet, but that just makes them more stressed. But the puffiness, you know, when your rings start to feel a bit tight or your shoe starts to get a, you know, a rim yep. around your feet, that's not fat. That is water retention. And the reason you're retaining the water is because you're not getting rid of the sodium properly. And water will follow sodium. So it's not about how much sodium you eat in your diet because your kidney will regulate the amount of salt. But when you're stressed, it can't regulate it properly, not because you're eating more. Yeah. So it's a cheat test for um, adrenal function. And mm -hmm. so the opposite is true. So if you actually um, have low levels of potassium, then your aldosterone isn't functioning so, so well. And so you tend to actually be more depleted. So you tend to have more fatigue. You tend to drink a lot of water, but you're always feeling thirsty. Um, there tends to be also a lot of uh, a lot more breakdown in tissues of the body, and it's very difficult to repair. So you also tend to have more infections and a compromised immune system. So we're taking all these minerals and looking at the balance and relationship in context again with the symptoms. I think on the, t on the topic of, you know, adrenal and stress, we mentioned that blood test for cortisol. If you do it several times a day, it would kind of be a bit impractical. But a lot of doctors do run a standard morning cortisol test. Mm -hmm. And so when we see that number, we can still have an idea if that person's stressed out or not in the sense that, well, is there a lack of energy or their tiredness and fatigue related to stress because the number on that 
morning cortisol. So this is around 8 a.m. when you can make it to the lab to get your blood test done. Yeah. Um, the range is quite large. So it could go from sort of a single digit of, I think, six yeah. up till like 18, 19. Yeah. And so if you get a number of 7.5, the doctors are like, oh, good, you're in range, you're good to go. Yeah. But you feel terrible because what should happen is in the morning, your cortisol is at the highest meaning that you should be at the very highest end of the range, mm-hmm. which is around the, the, the high teens, mm-hmm. in order for you to kickstart your body, start the day, start things going. So just because your number falls within range, you should really question whether that's a normal range. Because, yeah, maybe in the evening, if you took the test, it should be 7.5. But in the morning, it definitely shouldn't be there. Yeah. So an example is if, say, the standard range is between 4 to 22, you optimally would want your range to be be between 10 to 15. Yeah. So what about thyroid? Because thyroid is a very common test and I run it on most of my patients because a lot of thyroid conditions can mimic um, mental health symptoms. Yeah. Um, and people get so confused about thyroid tests because there's so many numbers you need to look at. <laughs> and it, sometimes doctors don't test all the numbers so you don't have all the right information to try and figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I think it's even more important to look a little bit deeper, especially if the actual standard testing doesn't come back with anything abnormal and, and the patient still has issues with weight gain, fatigue, constipation, hair loss and menstrual problems. Because conventionally, um, most doctors will only test um, the something called the TSH, which is called the thyroid stimulating hormone. And this hormone is actually made in the pituitary gland, which sits in your brain. And this hormone then sends a signal to the thyroid, which is a gland that sits in just below your neck area. And it actually causes that thyroid gland to make two hormones called T4 and T3. So T4 and T3 made by the thyroid gland are sometimes measured. So if those levels all fall within normal and the T4, T3 are not low, then you don't have a thyroid problem. So to have a low thyroid problem diagnosis, you have to have a high TSH because obviously the the brain is trying to send a signal to the thyroid gland to say to make more thyroid hormones. And you you will also have low levels of either T4 or T3. So if you see this pattern, then classically the doctor says, okay, well, you have um, low thyroid function, you're hypothyroid. But the problem actually lies when you don't really have obviously abnormal ranges. And so the reason is because when we talk about the activity of the T4 and T3 in our body or in the tissues, different parts of the body actually have a different response to the thyroid hormones. So the active thyroid hormone is actually T3. We call the T4 a pro-hormone because it has to be converted into T3 by the body. So T3 then acts on the receptors in our cells, and that's actually what causes energy to be produced. So it's important to look at all those numbers because we want to know what the relationship of that is. 
And to confuse the matter more, there is T4 and T3, and there's also free T4 and free T3. <laughs> so what does the free mean in front of the T and T4 and T3? So the free levels are the ones that are not bound to albumin, so the, the orthorobinding globulin. So, so there's another protein in the body um, that actually binds and transports these hormones around. And when they get to a specific site, they release it. And so when it gets released, then that's the free hormone. So we know that the free hormones are the ones that gets that, that binds to the tissue receptors, and that's when it's active. Okay. And then there's another one called reverse T3. Yep. So the reverse T3 is actually made when the T4 doesn't get converted to T3. It's a mirror image of the actual T3 molecule and it's called reverse T3. So what happens with the reverse T3 is that it actually blocks the thyroid receptors so that the actual T3 can't bind to it. So it doesn't actually have an effect. So if you have high levels of reverse T3, then even though you might have normal levels of T3, it actually doesn't have the same effect. It's a little bit like you have your left hand and your right hand, and the left hand is generally the one that you is a reverse, and then your right hand is your dominant hand that does the job. But now the the left hand's trying to do the right hand's job, but it doesn't do the job very well. It just gets in the way. Yeah. So that's why sometimes when we just look at the TSH levels or we just look at the total amount of thyroid hormone, but we don't actually measure the reverse T3 because it's often considered as not really clinically relevant because in conventional medicine, we don't really see this unless someone is actually in starvation or, or they're in very, very low carb diet. So we often don't measure it and we don't suspect it. But it's not just these conditions, but if you have chronic stress, if you have exposures to toxins, um, the body can actually convert the T T4 into reverse T3. So that's why we need to have to look at the entire picture to get an understanding of where the problem lies. And I think if you get your doctor to do a thyroid test, it would be good to get as many of these numbers as possible done. Because when you start piecing it together, you can see where things are blocked. So why is my T4 not getting converted to T3? Or why is my T3 normal, but I just still feel bad? Or mm -hmm. why is my TSH normal, but my T3 is low? So there are multiple patterns and, and combinations of how these numbers can come out. And having all those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle means that you can figure out potentially where things are stuck and focus on the reasons why those things are happening and how it applies to you and what you can do about it. Yeah. So the blood, I guess, yeah. So blood testing, even though they might be standard blood testing can be really, really useful and give us a lot of insights if you're interpreting it in a functional way. Yeah. And so if you have these numbers, and blood tests that you would like us to have a look at, we'll be really happy to go through them with you and explain to you where you can optimize your health just by focusing on certain areas that may not be a big problem right now, but maybe contributing to you know, certain symptoms that have been annoying you for a little while and you want to figure out what's going on.
Great. Cool. So I think we packed a lot in there. <laughs> so uh, hopefully the show notes will help a little bit. And if you have any questions, please let us know at anantawellbeing.com. Thank you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Great. Thank you. You can find us at anantawellbeing.com and follow us at anantawellbeing on Facebook and Instagram. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review to help other like-minded people find us. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical condition. This podcast and its producers disclaim any responsibility for adverse effects that result from the use of this information. Opinions of guests are their own and are not endorsed by this podcast. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions. We do not make any representation or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Both producers and guests may have direct or indirect interest in the products and services mentioned. If you think you have a medical condition, please consult a licensed physician.